In Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, and that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. To your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. John Piper wrote, People are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul. Show me thy glory. We were made to enjoy and delight in greatness. That's why millions every year flock to see grand canyons, wild animals, faithful geysers. It's why we post, share, and like videos of people doing incredible feats. It's why we're drawn to beauty, to money, to possessions. We were made to enjoy greatness, and that is not a bad thing. The problem is, as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 1, that we've exchanged the truth of God were a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. No longer do we look up at the infinite sky and see all the stars and praise the maker. We praise and study the stars alone. No longer do we see someone who's beautiful or artistic or athletic or intelligent and praise the one in whose image they're made, but we only praise that person. And so a remedy always has to get back to the core problem. And our core problem as humans is that we have false, we have deviant worship. And so what we need to do is repent of this false worship and come to worship the true and living God. As we go through this morning, we're going to talk about worship in the formal religious sense, what we're doing here. But if every time I say the word worship, that's all you think of, then you're going to misunderstand me and the Bible. Because worship is not just what you do at an event, it is relegated to all of your life you know worship is the fundamental belief in the heart of your hearts that says this is the greatest thing in life it's the thing that your heart goes to when you have nothing else to think about it's what you love to daydream about it's what you say when you fill in this blank if only i have fill in the blank then life will be blessed if only i could get married then life will be better if only we'd have kids then life will be perfect if only the kids would leave 
then life will be perfect. If only my spouse would be more romantic and care about me more. If only I could get this promotion. If only I'd be invited to be with these friends. If only, and we could fill in the blank, because it's not that we have one thing that we think we have to have to enjoy life. There's many things. And yet the one thing we do need is God. And so we are pulled by all these false worships. And it's not that any of those things are bad. It's great to want to get married. It's wonderful to have children. Maybe wonderful for them to leave. You, that's something you can decide. But none of those is bad. It's that we say life is not meaningful unless I have, and we put something in that blank besides God. And that is false worship. That is what we're talking about this morning. And as a church, as Christians, our goal is to continually remind one another to proclaim that God is great. He is what we need. And then that's why we as a church, what is our purpose? Well, we want to exalt God. We want to encourage, edify one another towards God. And we want to go and evangelize, tell the world about God. But what does the word exalt mean? You know, we've used it a lot this morning, but what does it even refer to? Well, it means when you lift something up, you hold it up, as we say, on a pedestal so everyone can look at it because it's worthy of our admiration. And this morning, we're going to see three ways we exalt God. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back. We first exalt God by listening to him. We second exalt God by speaking to him. And third, we exalt God by reflecting him. I get this threefold structure from Michael Morrison who shows that in both Hebrew and Greek, there are two major kinds of worship. The first kind means to bow down. It means to kneel, to put one's face down to the earth. It's a sign of reverence, submission, saying to God, here I am, I'm listening to you, and I'm going to do whatever you say. But there's another set of words in the Bible for worship. That is a worship that means to serve, that we are going to do what God says. Not only do we just bow down, but we then actually go and do it. And so if we are going to worship God, we have to listen, we have to speak, we have to reflect. And we can't pick one or the other, because if I only listen, but then I don't do what he says, did I really think his words were great? Or if I do what he says, but the whole time I'm doing it just because I have to, well, that's pharisaical legalism. And so we need to exalt God by listening, speaking, and reflecting. But let's look at the first one. We exalt God by listening to him. And this is just a fact of life. If you think someone's great, you listen to him. If you go on a date and you really like the person, you sit there and listen with rapt attention. <gasps> Everything they say. That's why when someone new has a boyfriend or girlfriend, they are talking for hours and you're going, what can they talk about? Oh my goodness, there's not that much interesting stuff. But they so care, they have all their attention. It's why a university student who admires their professor sits there eating on every word, or people who have a beloved politician want to hear everything they say, they exalt them by listening to them. It's why there are so many followers on social media. I want to know everything this person says, shows, or wants me to follow. I give them my attention. I listen to them. Thus, for us individually, for us corporately to exalt God, we listen. And we do this because really God's words are glorious. They're wonderful. Joseph read for us earlier Psalm 19. And part of it says the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold. Even fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 111, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. This psalmist is exalting God by saying, What you say is my heritage. It's my joy. We also do this because God commands of it. We began by reading Deuteronomy 6, and it says we're to think of God's word when? All the time. When you rise up, when you go out the door, when you're going, when you lie down. Everywhere we go, God is supposed to be focused on our life. His word is to dominate us. And God also commands us to do this because it's for our good. Psalm 1 tells of the man who does meditate on God's word, who does let it be in his life. And he's like a tree that's always bearing fruit. Bad times may come, but he's still giving forth leaf. Psalm 19.11, again, moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Listening to God will bring a reward to your life. Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. How do we get through the rough times? There are many things, but the rock is God, listening to him in his word. And we could go on and on, but the point is clear that the main way we exalt God is we stop talking and we listen to him. And yet there are two main siren calls in the world, even in the church, saying, well, yes, but there's really other things we need to listen to. Well, yes, but we need a relevant message for today. We need something that's going to work. We need something that's practical, applicable. If you go and pull off most books on church growth, one of their mantras is we need to make sure we don't say anything offensive. That we create an environment that's enjoyable, that you leave here having had a pleasant experience. And they're right. If you want to grow a church visibly, you can follow their techniques and you will most likely grow a church. But is it the growth that God wants? Well, I would argue if you achieve it only by that means, no, because if we're going to listen to God, then sometimes we're going to say things that offend If you offend no one, then you surely have offended God because God's word has always been a fragrance of life to some and a fragrance of death to others. Some people hear God's word and it brings nourishment. Other people hear God's word and it brings anger. And so if we are going to be a church that exalts God, we can't just go, well, what is going to bring in the crowds, but what is going to honor and exalt God? And the problem here is most errors have a grain of truth. We should want, I hope all of us desires this room to be full. We want God to be exalted, so we want more people. So what can we do? Even 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25, talks about an unbeliever coming into the worship of the church. 
And it talks about them being able to understand the word and then praising God because they say clearly God is in their midst because of the clear word of God. However, 1 Corinthians is talking about speaking understandably, not entertaining. It's talking about when we talk, let's just not use language that you have to kind of get the secret handshake to understand what we're talking about. Let's speak in clear, understandable ways, not in ways to tickle ears and make people want to laugh and listen in that sense. You know, I hope that our church is one where if you long for God, that your hunger is fed through our services, through our teaching. And I hope if the word of God bores you, you come here and find this really boring because we want our service, we want our church to be about listening to God. And that really gets to the crux of the matter, and that is the question of relevance. R.C. Sproul was once asked how to make the Bible come alive. He replied, you want me to make the Bible come alive? I didn't know that it died. In fact, never known that it was ill. Who was the attending physician at the Bible's demise? No, I can't make the Bible come alive for anyone. The Bible is already alive. It makes me come alive. The Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice it didn't say every word that came, as though thousands of years ago God spoke, and now we sit and we only hear what God said. God speaks today through his word. Hebrews chapter 3, the author is warning his hearers, and he quotes from Psalm 95, and then he says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense. When someone opens up the word of God and rightly teaches it or preaches it, the voice of God is being heard. I don't know what you came to hear this morning, but if you came to hear a preacher, you set your goal way too low. If you go to a water fountain, hopefully you're not going to look at the spigot. You're going to engulf, to drink down the water. The water brings life. If you came here this morning to look at me, you have really low aims beyond that, but you are really looking at the wrong thing. You should have come to drink of the water of life that a mere fallible vessel is trying to pour out to you. Don't come to hear a man. Come to hear God as he speaks through his word. That's what we are here to listen to. So in this proclamation, though, we do need to realize we are talking to 21st century people, not 1st century. There is, again, a grain of truth. We should speak in a way that is relevant. What I mean by that is we speak not in King James English anymore, not that that's always bad, but we speak in a way that people today understand. You know, sadly, people go to two extremes. They either, one, say, we are sticking with what has always been said, and they kill the church by their traditionalism. The other extreme is to say, well, God is boring. Really, his word is not relevant, and so we need to make it hip and cool for a new generation. You know, there is in the middle the realization that we are giving the same message. We should be giving the same message that has been told for millennia that's revealed in God's word, but we say it in a way that is applicable to today. 
Not changing the content, but changing the words so that the content is clear. But sadly, as Piper said, many people today are starving for God. And even when they go to church, they are fed jokes, life tips, motivational talks. As God warned through his prophet Amos millennia ago, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. God calls us to exalt him and feed one another by hearing the word of the Lord. That is what gives nourishment to your soul. God's word is and always will be relevant. And our desire is that in our church, you can come and feast on his word. And so there's the pool that says, yeah, yes, this is God's word, but we need a relevant message. And I want to say it is relevant. But there's another pool away from God's word, and that is the pool of humanism that wants to get the focus off of God and on us. It begins with the mindset that our problem is not so much that we've rebelled against God, but we have a sinful nature that causes us to make mistakes. And so if you give people some education, better finances, and a little God, yes, we need God, their life will be better. You know, Jesus came to be your friend, and what you need to know more than anything else is God loves you. And the cross, you know what the cross is? The cross is showing how valuable you are that God would die for you. And thus, in essence, you're the center of the universe. Everything revolves around you. To use a small illustration, it's so you're a bicycle tire and you're the hub. And every spoke of life revolves around you. And yes, God should be a spoke on that wheel, but he is just another spoke making you better. And yet the Bible says something very different. It declares our problem is not that we make mistakes. Our problem is that down to our core, we've rebelled against God. What we need is not medicine for the sick. We need resurrection for the dead. We need to be made alive. Thus, Jesus came to restore his kingdom by redeeming rebels, by giving us new life that we could never do. He's not merely our friend, though he is that, but he is our Savior and Lord. The cross is not an emblem of how worthy you are. It's a picture of God's holiness, showing his justice and love. Thus, God is the essence of life. All radiates from him. To use the illustration again, God should be the hub of your life, of your tire, so to speak. And everything radiates, all the spokes of life, your finances, your hobbies, your relationships, everything flows from him that god is what matters god is that not there to help us we are there to exalt him we must decrease he must increase and this man-centered gospel that god is here merely to make your life better is sadly preached in many churches and as i said in the beginning the point is not to go well thank you god that we're not like other churches we are in need of God's grace too, but we need to realize what God is calling us to be and do in our church. And thus we've seen for our church to exalt God, we must be a church that listens to God's word. A church that's not full of the latest ideas or fads or tips, 
but that is infused with Scripture. Yet that is really not the end goal because you can have all the right beliefs. You can know all of God's Word and not honor God. Satan has better theology than I do. Satan can quote Scripture better than anyone in this room. He would win every single Bible memory chart, every contest that exists, but he doesn't worship God. He doesn't respond in all. He doesn't obey him. And thus, if we want to exalt God, yes, we must first listen, but that must propel us into speaking to him. The second point, we exalt God by speaking to him. And here we quickly diverge into two different paths about how the church should speak to God. Let me explain by a little parable, Bertha's birthday party. So birthday day comes, Bertha has planned everything, the friends come, and yet while everyone's enjoying the games, Billy pouts. While everyone is singing, he scowls. When they start to cut into the cake, he goes off to the corner and sits by himself. And finally, one of the adults comes over and says, Billy, what's wrong? He goes, you want to hear what's wrong? Who would have picked those stupid games to play? Why wasn't anyone singing to me? Who would pick vanilla when you can have chocolate cake? And the adult quickly realizes the problem is Billy wants the birthday party to be about him. But the birthday party's not about him. It's about Bertha. So when we gather, who is the time of singing about? Or perhaps to ask the question a different way, when we gather, are we trying to create We'll say there's 45 people, 45 different individual worship experiences, or are we as a group coming to praise God together? Well, think about the birthday party. Is the birthday party about 25 people having a wonderful birthday experience, or is it about all of them gathering to say, for this time, we are here to exalt, so to speak, Bertha. We're going to sing the song she wants. We're going to play the game she wants. If she likes vanilla and not chocolate, I'm going to eat the vanilla or just refuse and be happy. Now, there's one slight problem with my illustration, and that is Bertha can tell us, I want vanilla. God has not said, I really like rhythm and blues. Can you stop the classical? I mean, God hasn't given us that detail, that level of instruction. So if we're going to listen to God and then speak to him, what does he want? Well, though he hasn't told us, I love acapella, or I love when you use hymnals and not screens, and we could go all of them, he has given us some very clear, broad instructions about speaking to him. The first is found in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly by singing to one another. So how are we going to sing? We should sing in a way that reflects God and his word. We sing about who God is, what he's done, and the truths of his word. Every week I send Corbin and Keith an email, letting them know of the passage we're going to be looking at, what I believe the themes are, the outline of the sermon, and then we try and pick songs that reflect those themes about God. It's a subtle way of saying Jeremy's not always clear, so just listen to the songs and you'll get the point. There's other ways to get the main message of what's going on this morning. But all of it is trying to say, through our songs, through our scripture reading, through the sermon, we're lifting up God. We're speaking to God the words he's given us to speak to him. Now, some people wrongly conclude from this, yes, we're about God, so I'm never going to say I. I'm never going to say me. And yet the divine hymn book, the Psalms, has a lot of I and me. And as long as that I and me is 
showing our delight in God, that is good. The Lord is my shepherd. That's a good thing to say. I delight in your law. God, you are my hope and my salvation. There's nothing wrong about singing I and me if it's showing that God is the one who brings me delight. So first, we should sing God's word. Second, we should realize our primary audience is God. Doesn't matter so much what the person next to me thinks of my singing. What does God think of my singing? You know, I'm not here to present myself to you. I'm here to present myself to God. But the second thing, or third thing, right after that is, while our primary audience is God, we are also singing to one another. Ephesians 5.19 says, We address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, that does not mean our church is a walking musical. How are you today? I am doing fine. No, we're not constantly singing. It's saying when we sing, we're singing not just to God, we're singing to each other. And as I know what you've been going through this last week and all the trials, and I see you sing about God is my joy, that brings encouragement to my soul that I'm seeing what's going on in your life and you can still praise God. You're singing to me. You're refreshing me. On the flip side, I see you constantly. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You're also singing to me a much different tune. You're singing that God really isn't that great and yeah, I'm here, but I'm not really here. We are singing to God, yes, but we are also singing to one another. The fourth thing that we should realize is what pleases God is people singing to him. Now that might seem like, of course, that's obvious. And yet, that truth really impacts the style of worship we should have. Because if it's true that what really matters is the singing, that people's hearts are lifted to exalt God, then that's going to affect songs we pick. Because not every song you hear on Christian radio can be sung by a congregation. Those people are talented musicians who can hit high notes that the best of us can't hit. And so we may be, that's great, but that's not great for this context. And thus we're going to pick songs that are going to encourage singing. And for some churches, that may mean they need to turn the music up, the instrumentation, because people will sing when no one else can hear them. For other churches, that may mean we need to turn the instrumentation way down because everyone goes, this is just a concert. It doesn't matter if I sing or not. Now, I'm not trying to say one is right and the other is not, but each local church needs to go, how can we encourage people to sing? Not just to come and passively hear something, but so their hearts are then overflowing onto their lips and exalting God. And we could also talk about how our song should strive for excellence, though not performance. We should talk about how we should sing a variety of emotions. The Psalms are not just all praise and joy there's also praise and lament but probably one of the most important aspects of singing to god that we need to remember is love yes love for god but also love for others you know the song that we sing for the fifth time in the year and you go is bringing joy to that saint who sung it all their life and they go oh i'm so glad we sing that I laugh every time I read this, but C.S. Lewis was talking about his own church, and he said, our hymns are fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. And yet he still went to church, and he didn't make a fuss. 
because he's there to love them and to love God. So maybe the singing wasn't what he wanted, but out of love for others. He said, I'm going to allow what I don't enjoy because I love God and I love these people. You know, there's no sanctified holy style. There's no, we have to use piano and guitar, but we couldn't use drums or we should use drums. We should pick what instrumentation is going to honor God and encourage this local body to praise and exalt God. So if you have a talent, let Keith know. I know he'd love to plug you in. May we exalt God by speaking to him. But we speak not just in our singing, but also in our praying. This is the pattern we see over and over in the New Testament church. There's a commitment to prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And when we pray, I prayed at the beginning of the service and Keith prayed. I hope you realize that's not me praying. That's not just Keith praying. And we both, when we pray, do not say I and me. I say we and us. I am praying for us. This is our prayer to God. We are all joining in it. And so though it's not commanded in Scripture, sometimes an appropriate thing at the end of the prayer is to say, Amen. You're affirming that what Keith led us in in prayer is the prayer not just of Keith is giving to God, that our church is saying, Amen. We just prayed that prayer to God. And yet again, sadly, prayer in church, prayer services are becoming almost obsolete. Now, I'm not saying we need to reach some minute. I don't have a timer up here. Oh, got to a minute and 30 seconds. Check, we've prayed the right amount of time. There's no length of prayers that makes it more holy or spiritual. But when we have no prayer, that is speaking volumes. Except we need to realize exalting God is not just limited to listening to God. It's not just limited to talking to God. Both of those then should lead to reflecting him in our lives. To pick up the analogy again from earlier, God is the hub of our life from which all else flows. And we worship him not just in this event, we worship him throughout the week in all of our activities. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1:21, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our lives or our worship. This is why he talks about whatever you do, eating or drinking, do it to the glory of God. Thus, the church that exalts God does not relegate this to some Sunday morning or Wednesday night activity, but they seek to then go out and live this in their lives. Paul even says in 1 Timothy 1.5 that the goal of their instruction is love. Yes, the goal is to exalt God. Yes, the goal is to lead us to singing, but also the goal is love reflecting God and so we do that the third point we exalt God by reflecting him the saying is true that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery some of you adults I don't know why I've been in a singing mood this morning morning anyway some of you adults may remember the song that came out in 1992 sometimes I dream that he is me You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove. Okay, I sing so bad no one knows it. Like Mike. I want to be like Mike. Those of you my age remember in the 90s when they had all these Gatorade commercials and Michael Jordan, okay, yeah, some of you realizing how bad I sang, that's fine. 
had Michael Jordan playing, doing a basketball move, and then they would go to a court in the neighborhood and show someone imitating that and trying to be like Mike. Well, why? Because Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player, and I want to be just like him. And the implication from the commercial is you should be like him and drink Gatorade. But the point is, if you think someone's valuable, if you think they're great, you imitate them. You do what they do. You say, oh, I want to be just like them. Whoever we imitate, we are implicitly saying, you are worthy of exalting. What you do is worthy of being lifted up so much that I'm going to do it myself. One of the reasons why the Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We get to imitate, to reflect God by being holy like him. And by doing that, we exalt him. And yet in the U.S., we have a problem with that verse. And the problem is we read our assumptions into it. And the assumption is that Paul was talking to Caleb and Philip and other individuals. But when he says, you shall be holy, the you is plural. He's talking to the church. He's saying, as a body, you should be holy. As a group, you should be holy. Now, it's not that it's a one or the other. Christ came and died for the church, yes. And Paul can also said, can say, I have been crucified with Christ. That both are true. And yet we need to realize there's a corporate nature of what the Bible's talking about. Thus, as a community, we should be a reflection to the world around us of God. That leads us to lead lives of holiness and good deeds that Peter will then go on in chapter 2 to say, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, see your good deeds as plural. As they look and they go, oh, the church is horrible. They're full of this, this, and this. They have to admit one day actually what they did was really beneficial. They glorify God because of it. God cares about us reflecting him because it does exalt him, but also because God has chosen in a unique way to make his presence known in the church. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does use similar language, and he is talking about the individual. But here, the you that is the temple of God is plural. It's the church, is the temple of God. Jesus was saying in a unique way, I am in your presence when two or three of you are gathered. In a greater way than just one of you by yourself. The interesting thing is Jesus' words about when two or three are gathered, or Paul's words here, are both referring to when we are leading holy lives. When we're leading lives that reflect God. And in both cases, both men, Jesus and Paul, then go on to talk about if people aren't leading holy lives, you should remove them. Both of them are saying holiness matters. Paul will go on to deal with a specific issue. He'll go on to say, look, 
There's a man in the church who professes to be a believer, but he's living in unrepentant sin. And because he is not wanting to repent, you need to remove him from the body. Well, wait, is Paul saying we've got to be perfect to be in the church? Well, no. The issue is if I can continue to sin and have no remorse and I don't want to change, then I don't really want to exalt God. I'm wanting to live for myself. I'm back to my core problem. And so Paul and Jesus is saying, you need to warn that individual that if you're living a life like that, you probably do not know God. And so we're not going to treat you as one who knows God. And we want the church to be a visible light, and so we don't want the world to look in and go, they don't even do what the Bible says. And yet if that person does confess, if they repent, we wholeheartedly, we joyfully welcome them back. That was the goal, restoration, not punishment. And so here we're being shown that we exalt God by reflecting him, by being a holy community, so much that we even lovingly call one another out when we're living in sin. And all of that is really leading to the next two points because we're all tempted to sin, so we need to be constantly encouraging, equipping one another. God is so great that we want to go out and exalt the world, evangelize the world. And yet our witness is going to be undercut if we're not living lives of reflecting God. So we've been seeing this morning that we were made to delight in and know greatness. And the greatest thing we can know is God. That's the primary purpose of any church should be that we should want to listen to God. We should want to speak to God and we should want to reflect him so that we might exalt him. We want to be a visible picture of God to each other in the world. And we want to be so heavenly minded that we do earthly good. The saying's often said the other way. You're so heavenly minded that you do no earthly good. However, I would argue the opposite is the case. This was clearly portrayed in the life of the missionary Mike McComb. Mike went to go serve in Guatemala and there as he went to one of the poor villages, he realized they were really lacking in nutrition. So for six years he worked in a nutrition clinic, trying to help them, improving, giving the farmers tips on how to grow better crops, how to eat better food, how to do all these things that would improve their diet and improve their lives. At the same time, he faithfully preached the gospel for six years. And what ended up bringing the most change? What ended up bringing the most nutrition to them? In fact, it was the gospel. He says, when the gospel was understood and accepted in villages, men stopped getting drunk and beating their wives. As they sought to honor God, they started to attend to their crops and their children's education. In fact, the local mayor, Thomas, commented that it was only when the gospel came to their lands that real change happened. The preaching of the gospel did more to eliminate hunger than any hunger-reducing program. Because as lives were changed by wanting to exalt God, it then led to wanting to reflect God to the community around them, to their wives, to their children. And so may we as a church be so heavenly minded, may we be so focused on exalting God that we would then be of much more earthly good. We don't need to pick one or the other. It is as we come to exalt God that we will be a church that does good on this earth.
Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are far from what you call us to be. And yet by your Spirit, we ask you to renew us day by day. May we be a church that is exalting you and also going out because of you to be salt and light in this world. Lord, we long to see and savor you. And yet we are pulled so often by the desires and delights of this world. So would you again give us appetites and eyes for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.